The last few weeks, I've been speaking about um, interior mortification, interior self-denial or purification. And two weeks ago, we had the Gospel of the Samaritan Woman spoke about the purification of the memory, that Jesus wants to heal our memory because the memory is made to recall and remember God. And the problem is that we forget God all the time. And so what Jesus does to the Samaritan woman is that he has a Samaritan woman who has stuffed down in her memory her sins. Jesus helps her to remember these sins, but then in showing her his mercy, she is able to forget them, recognizing that she is forgiven. Last week, spoke about the purification of the imagination, that the problem with the imagination is that we get caught up in all these things around us. St. Teresa of Avila says that the imagination, when it has fallen, is like a mad woman in the house. It's like, you don't want to go in there. It's dangerous. And so the imagination can lead to either dissipation, when we get, get incredibly distracted, or temptation, where our imagination leads us to be tempted towards appealing things or away from difficult things. And we saw that the man born blind, now that he has no images in his mind, once healed, is able to ascend immediately to faith in Jesus Christ, rather than the Pharisees who have their own images of the Lord and it does not match up with the Messiah. Well, the imagination and the memory are two powers of man that he shares with animals. But today I want to talk about the healing or the purification of the intellect, the only interior power that man does not share with the animals. And so for this reason, because how powerful our intellect is, and because it likens us most to God, now that our intellect has fallen, it is the faculty that is in most need of healing. Now, in order to talk about why the intellect needs healing, what's wrong with it, we have to talk about what does it do? What is our mind supposed to do? What our mind is supposed to do is to look at things, to abstract them, and then ultimately to get to their final cause. We notice this whenever like the intellect unfolds in one of our children, is that their favorite word becomes why. Why, why, why? Everything is why. And so it is with the intellect that we, unlike the rest of animal creation, are able to look at things in the world and then ask why until our intellect rests in the ultimate why. That is, what is the cause behind all things? And so our intellect is not satisfied until it finds God, who is the cause of all things. And so now we know that the intellect's end, and really man's end, is to know God. We have to talk about how is it that the intellect has fallen? How is it that it fails? So first, what does the intellect do? The intellect philosophers say does three things. The intellect abstracts, it judges, and it reasons. So for instance, 
the intellect abstracts. I can look at this pew right here as a rational creature and say, okay, that, it's L-shaped, it's long, it's only got two ends. I can put into my mind, yeah, that's a pew. And then I can judge, I mean, like, well, it's stained. I judge the value of it. It's stained, it's got a cushion, it's a good pew. And then I can reason about it. I can say, okay, well, if I'm going to build a pew like that, then I'm going to need fabric, I'll need cotton, I'll need stain, I'll need lumber, and I'll need power tools. So my intellect can do all those things. Now the fallen intellect in abstraction, judgment, and reason is all messed up. So for instance, in abstraction, what the intellect is supposed to do is look at material things and be able to say, what is the cause behind all of this? And to be able to look up to God. We who are fallen struggle to find God hand in creation. Our abstracts, our power of abstraction is weak. We're not able to ascend, to climb the ladder upwards toward God, to see him in material things. And then in judgment. In judgment, what I do is that I kind of wonder if something is good or bad, this particular thing. Now, our judgment and our reasoning is really affected by our attachment to sin. So that you can imagine an addict would maybe judge, his power of judgment would be weak about maybe his addiction to a drug. Like, yeah, it's good, it's bad, but it's kind of good in this way, you know? And then he would reason, perhaps, well, I can be around my dealer, you know, just not on certain days of the week. But someone who is disinterested and has distance from it can obviously say, no, the drug is bad, and he could reason he shouldn't be around the dealer at all. And so it is with us as we have our attachment to vice and sin, that our judgment and reason is tainted by our interestedness in our loves for lower things. And so then we know that how the process of our intellect in its three powers fails, let's talk about the effects that fallen intellect um, has on us and how we can work backwards to come to say, okay, well, how do I heal it? How do I heal the intellect? First, the intellect is fully fallen and has its most powerful defect whenever we have something called spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. What is spiritual blindness? That I'm not able to see God. Spiritual blindness in the Gospels is manifest in the Pharisees. Jesus is in front of them. They are incapable of seeing him. What is it exactly, though? We know we have spiritual blindness, and the spoiler alert is that we all have spiritual blindness. Whenever we have an attachment, vice, or sin, and we know that it causes us no interior pain, no interior problem to hold on to this thing, or when I fall into it, because we are spiritually blind then, 
Because our intellect's end is God as our ultimate happiness. And so if I see in myself sin, attachment, and vice, and it doesn't move my heart or my will in any direction, well, it means that I've forgotten the first truth, that God is my ultimate happiness, or that I don't believe that first truth. And so what has happened is that we've become spiritually blind. And so the spiritual blindness is caused very simply. It's simply by doing repeated sins, no matter how small or grave, over and over and over again, without any repentance. It happens simply. Maybe I am attached uh, too much to anger, and I blow up on my family often. And after a while, I'm so tired of having to apologize and confront my own weakness that I just simply numb myself to it. I no longer look to God in sorrow. I simply explain it away as this is a character defect. This is just the way that I'm made, the way that I'm built. And so because of that, I'm fine with it. This is spiritual blindness. We no longer look to God as our last end, we look to ourselves. And by repeating that sin over and over, we start to lose sight of God. And so, beyond the repeated sin, what can we look at to know of uh, how our intellect is to be purified? Before comes spiritual blindness, comes curiosity, the sin of curiosity. Now we have to pause here and distinguish, okay, well, what's bad about curiosity? Aren't we supposed to learn new things and have our mind go to places that hasn't gone before? Yes. But in the Christian tradition, we like to distinguish the difference between curiosity and wonder. In wonder, my mind goes from created things upwards to God and acknowledges everything created as belonging and finding its final end in God. In curiosity, what I am doing is I no longer, I no longer want to think or look at God. And so I want to fill my mind with a bunch of useless or only slightly useful facts. This is curiosity. And what curiosity does is as we fill our mind with useless or only slightly useful facts, is that it dampens our mind like adding too much wood to a fire. It smothers the fire. And the fire is not able to burn. Uh, the spiritual author, Father Jordan Oman, talks about two kinds of people. There are those who have this childlike understanding and are able, though they're not greatly educated, to look at things very clearly because they have simple faith in the gospel. They know that above all things, to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest thing, to love their neighbor as their self is also the greatest commandment. But then there are those who fill their minds with all this stuff and have like a mania for collecting all these facts. Maybe it's an obsession with sports info. Maybe it's an obsession with TikTok or YouTube. Maybe it's an obsession with uh, the news. We just are always running the news. And so we fill our minds so much 
that we handicap ourselves in, a, in order to be able to see God. And this curiosity is not one of these kind of like amoral things where I look at myself, it's like, well, I just have a wandering mind. Like, okay, great. Well, you're just, your wandering mind doesn't help solve the problem that God alone is your happiness and that in contemplating him will you be truly happy because that's what you were made for. The curiosity is caused by the vice of spiritual sloth. And now we are getting more and more to the root of what the problem is. It's spiritual sloth. And what spiritual sloth is, differentiates from how we understand just laziness, is that I look to God and the things of God, and I become sad. I look to the things of God, and they sadden me. And the reason why they sadden me is because it seems too difficult to attain. And so once that difficulty is embedded in my heart, from a poor judgment I've made, then I fill my mind with a whole bunch of slightly useful or, slightly useful or useless facts. And so while sloth is one of the ways in which we fail, the spiritual sloth, because we look to the Lord and heavenly things and we have no joy, that is in relationship to God himself in this vertical plane. On the horizontal plane, though, St. Isaac the Syrian says that if we were to purify our intellect, that we need to exercise the virtue of mercy. Exercise the virtue of mercy. G.K. Chesterton says that our, we should have a heart of flesh and a mind like a steel trap. But modern man has a heart of stone and a mind that is relative. Our mind is filled with relativism. In exercising the virtue of mercy and compassion, it's as if the tears that come from our eyes clear our vision and we're able to see our neighbor rightly and we're able to see the image of God in him. We know the ways in which we objectify people through lust. And the people, you know, and we know that whenever we do that, that we're ridden with guilt and so we rebound, we're ridden with guilt and we rebound. But there's another way of objectification, at least one other way. I'll just bring this one to mind. That is that I reduce someone to just like economic factors, right? Like, oh, well, they're just poor. They need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and start all over again. Or they're maybe just a member of a party. I can dismiss them, so on and so forth. That's why they think this way, boom, boom, boom. You know, they're a member of a different denomination or a different religion. And so that is the way that they are, boom, boom, boom. And I cannot see them with any kind of mercy and compassion. And so my intellect is dull, I'm spiritually blind, and I remove myself from the capacity of being able to love. And so the two ways in which we can begin the work of active purification is that I can avoid spiritual sloth by exercising the virtue of hope. And I can exercise the virtue of mercy so that I do not reduce or objectify my neighbor. But... If we really meditate on the mind's end and that we are to contemplate God in all things, we realize very quickly that we're very far off. We are very far off. 
We fill our head with a whole bunch of useless things, and we struggle to find God in day-to-day life whenever we should be able to see him in all things. And so what is it that really needs to happen? We heard in the gospel what needs to happen. Chose this particular purification for today's gospel because the end of the purified mind is that the mind is so fallen that it needs the help of faith to raise it up above the things of the world. Because we want to be able to see God as he is and to see things as God sees them. And the conversation that Jesus has with Martha is the way in which faith is increased. And the actions that Jesus has towards Lazarus is the only way that we can truly come out of spiritual blindness. First, Martha's faith towards Christ in the gospel. It seems very theoretical at first and very distant. Martha says to Jesus, I do believe that you can raise on the last day. And then in this encounter with Jesus, he pulls out of her, yes, but do you believe that I can raise today? Do you believe that I am the resurrection? She refuses, after speaking to Jesus, to look at everything just on the plane of, well, Lazarus is dead. He's not going to get up. That's what dead people do. They don't get up. They're dead refuses to do that once she notices that Jesus is the resurrection. She says, I believe that you are the resurrection, Lord. I believe that you can raise him. What that encounter with Jesus does is that it makes faith go from theoretical to very near and lived and practical. What is it that we need in order to have our intellect purified? Is nothing more or mostly, mostly, we need a profound encounter with Jesus Christ. That is what we are most in need of. Jesus does the heavy lifting here. We can practice hope, and we can practice compassion, but alone that will do only a small portion of the work. And then there is the question of the spiritually blind. Because the problem with the spiritually blind is that they are dead. Is that we are dead. We are incapable of being, of seeing. Because through our repeated sins, we've chosen to see what we can see. We've calloused our minds and our hearts. But what we see in this gospel is a very important principle. That we cannot raise the spiritually blind by ourselves. We know a lot of people in our lives that are spiritually blind more so in ways that we are not. We might be able to talk to our family about something that deeply moves us in the faith, that we are deeply moved by the reception of daily communion, or by the beauty of the liturgy, or by praying faithfully every day, that that moves us. And then when we share that with them, it just bounces off. It never touches them. And to kind of like force our hand over and over again on those who are not moved by the truths of the faith would be as useful as Martha walking into the tomb and performing CPR on Lazarus. Wouldn't work. What needs to happen is Jesus piercing through the tomb of our intellect with his light. 
that Jesus is the one who alone can cure the spiritually blind. Perhaps the spiritually blind are moved by our faith and our compassion, as the Jews who were spiritually blind at the tomb of Lazarus were moved by the tears of Jesus, by the faith of Martha, and by her tears as well, perhaps. But it's Jesus himself who is the principal mover. And so we ask that Jesus can encounter us profoundly, that he can cast enough light and mercy, have enough hope in us and our salvation, and weep over our spiritual blindness, that he can purify our mind so that we may see him now and on the last day.